Hey there, you're listening to Campfire, a podcast where we interview leaders imagining new ways of living. Our guests are building new cities and other ways to connect for creators, technologists, nomads, remote workers, and more. My name is Jackson Steger, and today's guest is Chris Bruntlett, who leads international relations for the Dutch Cycling Embassy. The Dutch Cycling Embassy is a public-private network for sustainable bicycle inclusive mobility. They serve as an intermediary between the strong, strong demand for Dutch cycling expertise from cities around the world and the engineers, advisors, and institutions that can provide that expertise. People and cities that embrace cycling are healthier and more equitable. And listeners of this pod will know that I love cycling and Chris was absolutely preaching to this choir the entire episode. It's definitely one of my favorites that I've ever recorded. So with that, I'll just say that Campfire is produced by Cabin. It's a group of internet friends building a network of modern villages. For more about how to get involved, visit cabin.city today. Let's go ahead and get to the episode. Let's ride. Chris Brentlett, welcome to Campfire. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we talk about the Dutch Cycling Embassy specifically, I'd love to just help level set with our audience, which is a broad audience from around the world, but skews a little bit more American. For folks who haven't been to the Netherlands or maybe haven't been in many years, can you provide the cultural history of cycling in the Netherlands at like the 10,000 foot view and then maybe lead that into like the Netherlands in 2024? Why are the Dutch best positioned to have a cycling embassy? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. I mean, I think it's worth emphasizing a few things. Of course, statistically and by reputation, the Netherlands is the most foremost cycling nation on the planet. They've got the only country in the world with more bicycles than people. They ride per capita bicycles more than any other human population. And of course, those are impressive. But I think people that visit the Netherlands see firsthand, and this is what we like to emphasize, is the impact that this has on the built environment. This doesn't just lead to a morally superior, eco-conscious population, but it just results in better places for everybody to live. And it's also worth emphasizing that this was not predestiny and this was not always the case. This was the product of some very deliberate political decisions that were made in response to some really strong social movements that had an impact in the 1970s that rejected the car-centric planning that they were seeing at the time. After the Second World War, there was so much emphasis on the car. They had Dutch decision makers, like everywhere else, completely forgotten about walking, cycling, and public transport as possibilities. And it's only in response to that you see these widespread protests across the Netherlands and really set their priorities off in a completely different trajectory from the rest of the world. It's not to say that they didn't create some damage along the way. You know, there's a lot of Dutch cities that were hollowed out for the automobile, most notably Rotterdam, which was damaged quite extensively after the war. But in the last 50 years, they've really looked at the urban mobility challenge very differently, prioritizing walking, cycling, and public transportation over the private car in terms of how they've allocated their budgets, how they build infrastructure, how they circulate traffic. And now they're at a point where in a lot of cities here in the Netherlands, big and small, it's over 50% of traffic movements are made on a bicycle. It's done by virtually everybody, no matter their age, their ethnicity, their physical ability, their income level. Cycling is done by virtually everybody. And 
this is now, as you said, you know, hopefully a model and inspiration, but also a source of information for the rest of the world who are just getting started on their own journeys away from car dominance and car dependence towards this hopefully more sustainable and inclusive society. I really appreciate that great first answer. And so piggybacking off of that, what is the mission and what is really the purpose of the Dutch Cycling Embassy? Yeah, so we walk this very interesting space between diplomacy and economic development. And we were created in 2011 by the Dutch national government in response to a very concrete challenge that they were having and that they were absolutely inundated with these requests from other global governments for information, assistance, cooperation, and they just didn't have the capacity internally to handle those types of activities. So they set up the Dutch Cycling Embassy as this external entity and continue to finance our activities to act as this intermediary between the Ministry of Infrastructure and the Dutch public sector. The private sector here that wants to help other cities and hopefully create some consulting opportunities, but now kind of out of a position of leadership and responsibility, we can teach cities around the world, you know, what works, what is best practice, what the Netherlands has learned along the way, because they made a lot of mistakes along the way. They learned from their failures as well as their successes, and now they can potentially teach other places in the world how to go straight to the successful stuff and get started on their own journeys. But it's not going to be a copy-paste, and it's not going to be a mirror image of the Dutch journey. But I think with the local context and the, the outsider's perspective that some of our experts have, including myself as a native Canadian, you know, we understand that the Netherlands is now, yeah, in, in this position where they can hopefully provide some guidance to the rest of the world. Yeah, I would love to understand the transformation that you've described a little bit here. Like I've seen several times on Twitter this sort of side-by-side -side image of Amsterdam in 1970 versus Amsterdam today and, and how there really was this radical transformation from like there was this car reliance to where Amsterdam is and other cities across the Netherlands are now. And I asked this question with sort of this context that here in the States, there's this idea that America's too far gone, that it's too late to focus on cycling because there's already so much car infrastructure in place. And you know, certainly sometimes feels that way here in Los Angeles, where I'm recording this episode from. You know, these Dutch cities used to have a lot of cars and why is change not too late? And maybe use the Netherlands transformation <laughs> ample. No, I've never heard it described as too late. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it, first off, it's important to recognize the privilege that the Netherlands enjoyed in that they stopped digging themselves this hole into car dependency 50 years before everybody else. And so the transition out of that hole, <laughs> if you will, it was a little, well, a lot easier and because the people that lived in these cities still had living memory of what their streets used to look like. You still had this kind of concrete understanding of how it could be. And elsewhere in the world, and including in the United States, they've been digging for another 50 years deeper and deeper into this, this depth of car dependence and car dominance, which means it's, yeah, it's going to be exponentially more difficult to dig your way out of it. But by no means should we use that as an excuse not to start digging or stop digging and start filling in and trying to bring ourselves back out the other side. Because, well, I think as cities like Los Angeles are realizing, you never can build enough space for automobiles. And it comes down to a question of geometry. 
But the more you build infrastructure for a single mode of transportation, the more space it requires, the more demand you induce, the more lanes you you build, the more traffic shows up, the more parking that you build, you can never actually build enough until you've got no city left for people and housing and businesses and so on. So for all the reasons we know around the environment, but I would argue more importantly around the livability, the resiliency and the vibrancy of our cities, we need to look at this mobility problem from another solution. Unfortunately, still the car industry holds our imaginations around, well, the future is going to be autonomous electric vehicles or flying cars or you know, a, a continuation of the status quo rather than thinking, well, do we need more cars or do we need fewer cars? And should we be looking at walking, cycling and public transportation synergistically to provide and replace a lot of car journeys, even in a sprawling context like Los Angeles or Austin, Texas, where the Dutch Cycling Embassy has done a lot of work? There's still a lot of short car journeys that take place that could be replaced if we create that synergy between other modes and really prioritize and invest in them. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up this synergy between other modalities. And I think you're so right that when people, again, especially here, talk about cities of the future, they're imagining jetpacks and flying cars. But I imagine a safe city with great infrastructure where it feels very livable and, and easy to walk around. So a lot of what we talk about on this show are cities of the future and building new cities. And I'm curious that if say some new island appeared off the coast of the Netherlands or off the coast of Los Angeles, and you and the Dutch Cycling Embassy were in charge of developing the infrastructure and planning this urban landscape, how would you design such a city and how would you future-proof it? Yeah, it's a wonderful question and it's one that we are not often asked, but I think because we're so focused on these retrofit projects on redesigning and yeah, reimagining existing cities and streets. But I think really, you know, we still as a species are building a lot of new cities and towns and developments, and that's really where we can hopefully get it right the first time. And there are some really neat examples here in the Netherlands of new towns, new cities that were built in the last 20 or so years. Houten is a wonderful example. It's just outside of Utrecht that was designed as this satellite commuter town, bedroom community that would feed workers into Utrecht and Amsterdam. And it's designed with all of these best practices from the Netherlands in mind in terms of making cycling really attractive, really direct and convenient, really time competitive within the city with nice, beautiful, wide, red, smooth cycle paths. Also making driving a little bit indirect, inconvenient and slower by reducing the speeds to 20 or 30 kilometers per hour by pushing the circulating traffic to the outskirts, to the perimeter of the city so that you can't filter through the residential and commercial areas and have that negative impact on the people that live, work and shop there so that you're a direct route from A to B on a bicycle within this city is actually quite indirect and would actually force you to circumnavigate the city and take a little bit longer. So nudging people towards other modes of transportation, not making the car completely redundant. You know, there are still plenty of cars here and, and I don't see them being replaced a hundred percent, but making it part of a suite of options that the residents can choose. And 
The last piece of the puzzle, of course, is great connection to public transportation because you do need longer distance trips inevitably. And that's where the bicycle can no longer get you further than five or 10, maybe 15 kilometers with an e-bike. But in combination with public transport, the, the cycling and the train can provide that door-to-door service over dozens, if not hundreds of kilometers and compete with the car and, and provide people with choices. And I think this is another point worth emphasizing is we make this, we view the built environment through the eyes of economically productive, able-bodied men that are going from their house to their office. And there are all these demographics that don't have a driver's license because they're too young or too old, or they don't have the physical ability to drive a car, or they don't have the financial means to drive a car. And yet we completely ignore them from the urban and transport planning. And they are either reliant on others for their mobility needs or stop taking a bus that (laughs) maybe runs every hour or whatever. So it's not just a question of quality of life. It's a question of justice and equality. And this flawed assumption that everybody has the physical and financial means to drive a car has got us to where we are today in a lot of places. But I'm, you know, I'm optimistic because I've seen the alternative. I live in the alternative. I work in the alternative. And I, I know that if we just start looking at this problem from a different angle, we can suddenly include so many more people in our public spaces and in our built environment. Yeah, that makes me think maybe there's a more obvious question that I should have asked earlier, but obviously there's a health benefit to cycling. You've just mentioned a financial benefit, a uh, equity benefit. What are some other categories of reasons why cycling is just really good for a nation, for a city, for a person? Yeah, you've listed a lot of them, but I think, you know, one thing that's really changed the conversation here in the Netherlands is just looking at cycling through a economic perspective. It's literally an emerging field called bikeonomics, where we don't just look at cycling, but other modes of transportation as well through this larger cost benefit to society over the life of a given infrastructure project. And as you can imagine, you know, building motorways and car infrastructure and parking, it has all these externalities, these negative costs to society that go way beyond just the motorway itself. But it has the yeah air and noise pollution, the physical inactivity and health impacts, the lack of safety, the the increased maintenance required just to keep that space functioning for decades. You know, these are all things that come out of taxpayers' pockets over the long run and cost society. And inversely, when we provide people with clean and active modes of travel, like walking and cycling, we're saving money on our health system in terms of physical activity. We're saving money on less noise and air pollution. We're creating more attractive places where people want to spend time and money. There's less maintenance required on the street. And so, yeah, as you can imagine, walking and cycling saves society so much money over the long term, over the life of that investment. And it's really changed, as I said, the conversation here in terms of justifying that initial investment, because the sticker shock can be quite significant. uh, And the idea that we should be spending that much on non-car means can be somewhat controversial. But if we look at it through this lens of bikeonomics, then suddenly we understand that cities are literally lighting money on fire just by not building active travel infrastructure. I would love for every city leader in the U.S. and around the world to hear what you just said. Speaking of around the world, you you know you sort of frame the Dutch Cycling Embassy as this 
extension of the Dutch government and that it can field all of the requests that you might be receiving from folks around the world. So can you share a little bit about both who the kinds of clients that you've worked with in the past are and also what's happening around the world in different cities and different bike ecosystems? What are some ambitious and aggressive bike infrastructure projects that you're inspired by maybe outside of just the Netherlands? Yeah, another great question. And I love talking about these international examples because they always prove the naysayers wrong. Because of course, once you start talking about Amsterdam or other Dutch cities, you hear, yeah, but it's dense and it's flat and the weather is nice and that will never work in my city. And to that response, you know, I'll bring up an example like Austin, Texas. Uh, and this is perhaps the best story that the Dutch Cycling Embassy has because it's a city that we've been working with for 11 or 12 years now on a series of exchanges and workshops and seminars. It is, of course, the least likeliest of locations in a sprawling Sunbelt American city. But what they've accomplished there is absolutely incredible. They are now 400 kilometers into a 650 kilometer cycling network plan with beautiful red tinted Dutch inspired cycle paths. They're about to put a huge investment into a light rail system that will be fed by this cycling network. Yeah, they've accomplished things that most US cities, while they're sitting around making excuses, Austin is just use the Netherlands as its North Star, as they said, and focused on capturing the short car journeys. And I mentioned this earlier, and I think this is worth emphasizing that Greater Austin is three times the size of Greater Amsterdam. It's So it's a third of the density. And in that environment, of course, it's hard to get everybody cycling. But even in that environment, half of all the car journeys are under three miles, five kilometers. And so the plan there was to try and capture 15% of those short car journeys from car to bike simply by designing a really high quality and cohesive cycling network. And this can be applied anywhere. Los Angeles, Atlanta, we did a workshop in more recently, Washington, D.C., Chicago, any U.S. city. The possibilities are there despite the very different context to simply take the Dutch principles of network design, focusing on maybe not the commute from the house to the office, but those short trips we take throughout the day to shops, restaurants, schools, and other daily needs. So this is the, I think, the low-hanging fruit of, of mobility planning, and especially when it comes to cycling. There's hundreds of examples around the world of where this is happening. And it's happening very quickly, and I think really accelerated by the pandemic, the, the COVID situation really forced cities to look at their street allocation in terms of how the space was divided and the resiliency of their transportation system, because a lot of cities realized very quickly that they didn't have that flexibility to give people choices when, in this case, the public transportation system really suffered due to the fear of the spread. So that's why you saw Paris, that's why you saw Barcelona, that's why you saw Bogota, Sydney all building real light, quick, cheap infrastructure and trying to give people alternatives. It wasn't out of a sense of opportunity. It was a sense of necessity because otherwise the alternative was that all of these public transport users would jump in their cars and create this kind of Carmageddon on top of existing traffic. So we've been lucky enough to work with many of those cities, including Paris, including Milan, which did a lot of work during the pandemic on pop-up infrastructure, that pop-up infrastructure has now been developed into a 750-kilometer 
cycling network plan that would be built between now and 2030. And unlikely candidates like Manila in the Philippines, which likewise, its public transportation system, it was actually shut down during COVID for fear of contagion. And they built 500 kilometers of cycle paths in nine months. And it was through us, informed by Dutch engineers, through a series of webinars that we did with their engineers to make sure that this pop-up infrastructure was built, thinking about the long term and how it would ultimately be hopefully made a permanent part of the streetscape. And that has been a more recent shift for us. You know, we've historically worked in Western countries because we've had to work with places where they have the economic means to hire the Dutch expertise. But now with more funding from the Dutch ministry and from development banks that we're partnering with, we're able to work in unlikely places. Like last year, we had a workshop in Accra in Ghana. Uh, I was in Delhi in India. We've done work in Ho Chi Minh and Bangkok. So the opportunities are infinite. And that's what keeps me up at night, you know, is, is uh, imagining or understanding the scale of the challenge. But I think we're uniquely placed in position to help these cities. As we always say, you know, skip the trial and error part, skip the street experimentation part. We now know what works and we can go straight to those strategies and hopefully get more people cycling in a very short period of time. And what exactly are those strategies? You mentioned this phrase that I love, the Dutch principles of network design. What are the specific actionable things that you recommend to like, the mayors of Austin or, or Atlanta or Ho Chi Minh? How can a city accelerate the speed with which they adopt uh, cycling infrastructure? And yeah, what are these principles of network design? I mean, you have to divide it into two parts because there's the political challenge and then there's the technical challenge. And I think until cities have figured out the political challenge, we're not going to get anywhere. It's not that this isn't a popular thing in most cities. It's that politicians are really risk averse and perhaps really overestimate how vehement the opposition is. And it just takes a handful of people to really derail or prevent change from happening. You know, we are seeing a new generation of leaders and especially younger leaders, especially women leaders like Mayor Wu in Boston. And they understand that not only is this the right thing to do, but it is, you know, largely quite popular. And then we can start talking about the technical ways to do this. And we always talk about kind of five strategies. The first of which, of course, as you've said, is work level. I think this is something that Dutch cities really learned very quickly in the 1970s that you can no longer or you can't just build a couple of individual cycle paths without considering how they connect to each other. Otherwise, you're never going to fulfill that true potential. You are ripping off the proverbial band-aid very slowly. And so, you know, you're not going to necessarily see mass cycling in your city until you've got this really cohesive grid of cycle routes that allow you to cycle from anywhere to everywhere in your city. The Dutch now have five principles of network design and, and that a network has to be safe, attractive, comfortable, cohesive, and direct. And these are the five principles that we take into our workshops when we're looking at choosing where the routes are going to go, prioritizing how quickly they're built. But in an ideal world, you know, they're built in a very short period of time and seen some really inspiring examples of Seville in Spain, of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that have built networks virtually overnight, you know, like in a year or two. And then they've really seen the spike in cycling ridership. And this is, of course, the approach that we always emphasize. In addition to the carrot, the cycling network is the carrot. We have to also talk about the stick. And this is where the traffic calming and circulation 
comes in, we have to make driving just, yeah, uh, a little bit indirect and inconvenient and slower within the city. And that may be also a difficult thing to do politically, but also a necessary thing to do because not every street can be a fully protected bike lane. We do have to have some cycling on local neighborhood streets where the traffic is filtered out and the speed and the volume of cars is really reduced. And further to that element, you know, the third we would say is designing for the speed and behavior that you want so that if you want a 20 mile per hour street, you can't just put up a sign and hope for the best. You really have to use engineering as a means to force drivers to slow down and pay attention through changes in texture and narrowing and introduction of chicanes and speed tables. I mean, these are all things that Dutch engineers that have perfected over the years in terms of with the understanding that the police can't be everywhere and people are going to drive the speed at which the street dictates and is designed for. And then the, the last element is this synergy between cycling and public transport. And you see it Everywhere in the Netherlands with the, you know, the thousands and thousands of bike parking spaces at the train stations, this is not an accident. It's a deliberate, you know, design so that the cycling infrastructure feeds into the public transportation system, which creates more passengers, it creates more cyclists, and it, yeah, replaces car journeys over significant distances at a tremendous scale. It's three quarters of a million bike train journeys a day in this country to the point where, you know, they, they can't build enough bike parking or enough bike sharing to keep up with the demand. But all these pieces are not going to happen overnight. But I think if you understand and start applying them on a small scale, the hope is that you can eventually enjoy the successes of the Netherlands in your own city, because this shouldn't be the only place where you can enjoy this quality of life. In this episode, um, your, your answer just now reminded me of a day this summer when I was living with some friends in Amsterdam and is sort of like a, exploring our own curiosity. We biked from Amsterdam to Utrecht and then took the train back in the evening. And we did this on like a beach share, like a bike share, you know, pretty underwhelming, heavy city bike, but it was still really easy to do and really appreciated the ease and convenience there. And you mentioned Dutch engineering, and I have such admiration and respect for Dutch engineering beyond just cycling, but there's a lot of innovation happening, of course, in the Netherlands as it relates to cycling, whether it's this really interesting locking system that some cycles have, or some people wind up dropping their bikes in the canals, and there's even a service to fish these heavy bikes out of a canal. And so I'm curious, you're much more immersed in this space than myself. Bicycles have been around for a few hundred years, but there's plenty of innovation still in the space. What are some developments at the intersection of cycling and technology that make you most excited? I think these types of technological innovations have been happening for a very long time here in the Netherlands. And probably most Dutch people don't even understand or appreciate how they are being implemented. And they are largely to solve very Dutch problems. And the best example I can use is the bike parking facilities at the train stations because the Dutch railways have such a tremendous problem with what they call vase feats. They're abandoned bicycles and people leaving their bikes there for long periods of time. And so most of these bike parkings now have a, a very high-tech solution, a series of optical sensors that are likely in the ceiling above all of the bike racks. And they're monitoring exactly how many bikes have been parked in each row and for how long 
and this serves a few purposes. You know, it, it provides real-time information to the user exactly how many free spaces are available on each row so that they can find a space as close to their platform or destination as possible. But to the bike facility operator, it allows them to understand how long each bike has been parked so that they can clear out the, the bikes that have been abandoned or left in that facility for too long and create that turnover and this system feeds out into the larger cycling network. So you will see digital signs on the streets of Utrecht indicating exactly how many bike parking spaces available at each facility in real time. You will see, well, there's a mobile application where you can check in exactly where your nearest bike parking space is. So that's one, I think, really nice example of how when we're talking about smart cities and we're talking about the application of technology, they can incentivize sustainable modes of travel and active modes of travel instead of just making cars a little bit more efficiently. But traffic light management is another really interesting area and one that the Dutch have been really innovating on for years. You know, the typical North American approach is just to have like 60 or 90 second intervals between green and red lights and that will never fluctuate throughout a given day maybe a little bit at rush hour where the dutch engineers have these really dynamic systems where there's sensors in place and they know uh, and can adjust in real time the timing of the traffic signals to allow for greater volumes of cars or bikes but in this case you know they really want to prioritize the more sustainable mode of transportation so they will hold a green light for a little bit longer, especially if there's additional bike traffic. And yeah, the timing of the traffic lights becomes very flexible and you are ultimately on your bike, you're spending less time waiting at a red light, which in a lot of car-dominated North American cities, you could spend half of your cycling journey just waiting at traffic lights, along with the approach of just removing traffic lights in general, uh, which has been the approach for many years. They're also now hoping to make the remaining traffic lights a bit smarter when it comes to responding and encouraging more active means of travel. You know, there's still just such a strong clash between cyclists and motorists, especially here in Los Angeles, but I'm sure in cities throughout the world. And so when local advocacy groups and urban planning departments work to introduce more and better cycling infrastructure, how can these people be creating win-win situations? What are the benefits to motorists when there are more cyclists on the road? I think this is a very important point. And I can certainly emphasize that or empathize that change is not easy. And being a early adopter in this area means that you are often putting yourself in really unsafe and uncomfortable positions. So I think this is one of the flawed ways that we still frame and present this argument and, and perhaps comes back to our very simplistic way that we look at street space and mobility is we make this assumption that it's black and white, it's win or lose, that by giving small amount of space to other modes of transportation, the people in cars are losing. And, and I think it comes out of a place of privilege because they've enjoyed this privileged position for such a long period of time but also very real and, and understandable reactions of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is how the human species reacts to change in a lot of ways. And the, the good news is that it's not black and white, and it's not win or lose. And in fact, we can spark, hopefully, a conversation about this win-win scenario that you know drivers in the Netherlands enjoy immensely because 
for every single person that chooses foot, bike, or public transport, they're one less person in this big, clunky car sitting in traffic in front of you. And we can, if we get this balance right and we get the approach right, we can create this win-win scenario where there's less traffic in front of you. There may be a little bit less space for cars, but certainly fewer cars competing for that space. And this is, again, embodied by the fact that there's very little traffic congestion in most cities in the Netherlands. There's so few short car journeys taking place that even if you still want to drive and need to drive, you can zip around just fine. Thank you very much. And the people on bikes are in a physically separated bike lane, so you never have to stress about their unpredictable positioning or behavior. And so there's lots of reasons why the Netherlands is ironically, uh, or perhaps paradoxically, you know, one of the best places in the world to drive a car because, you know, they have provided these alternatives to people and these choices. And as we say, we always frame this in terms of we're just creating choices for people. We're not designing the car out of cities. And we're not saying that everybody in a city has to get on foot, bike, or public transport. It's just for people who can't drive or people who don't want to drive everywhere all the time, we've currently designed that choice out of our cities and we need to start looking at it through that angle. Most famously said to me by an American engineer, you know, Americans have a thousand choices for breakfast cereal, but only one for their mobility. Uh, and so I hope, I hope we can frame it that way and, and make this argument that we do. Americans really need more choices in terms of getting around and in between their city. Well, here's to providing more choices. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. For folks who want to learn more about the Dutch Cycling Embassy, where should we send them? Yeah, our website is dutchcycling.nl, and there's a lot of information there. A lot of the cities or projects or case studies that I've talked about, you can find there through the search function. We're active on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. If you just search the Dutch Cycling Embassy, we're posting a couple of times a day, every day. And if you want to reach out to me personally, you know, drop me a line on LinkedIn or my email address is on the website. Always happy to chat about what's happening in your city and how we might be able to help. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been a pleasure. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Cheers.